Section 10 of Part 3 of Religious Affections. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matthew James Gray. mjgray.id.au Religious Affections by Jonathan Edwards. Section 10 of Part 3. This sense of the spiritual excellency and beauty of divine things does also tend directly to convince the mind of the truth of the gospel, as there are very many of the most important things declared in the gospel that are hid from the eyes of natural men, the truth of which does in effect consist in this excellency, or does so immediately depend upon it and result from it, that in this excellency's being seen, the truth of those things is seen. As soon as ever the eyes are opened to behold the holy beauty and amiableness that is in divine things, a multitude of most important doctrines of the gospel that depend upon it, which all appear strange and dark to natural men, are at once seen to be true. As, for instance, hereby appears the truth of what the word of God declares concerning the exceeding evil of sin, for the same eye that discerns the transcendent beauty of holiness, necessarily therein sees the exceeding odiousness of sin. The same taste, which relishes the sweetness of true moral good, tastes the bitterness of moral evil. And by this means a man sees his own sinfulness and loathsomeness. For he has now a sense to discern objects of this nature, and so sees the truth of what the word of God declares concerning the exceeding sinfulness of mankind, which before he did not see. He now sees the dreadful pollution of his heart, and the desperate depravity of his nature in a new manner. For his soul has now a sense given it to feel the pain of such a disease, and this shows him the truth of what the scripture reveals concerning the corruption of man's nature, his original sin, and the ruinous undone condition man is in, and his need of a saviour, his need of the mighty power of God to renew his heart and change his nature. Men, by seeing the true excellency of holiness, do see the glory of all those things, which both reason and scripture show to be in the divine being. For it has been shown that the glory of them depends on this, and hereby they see the truth of all that the scripture declares concerning God's glorious excellency and majesty, his being the fountain of all good, the only happiness of the creature, etc. And this again shows the mind the truth of what the scripture teaches concerning the evil of sin against so glorious a God, and also the truth of what it teaches concerning sin's just desert, of that dreadful punishment which it reveals, and also concerning the impossibility of our offering any satisfaction or sufficient atonement for that which is so infinitely evil and heinous. And this again shows the truth of what the scripture reveals concerning the necessity of a saviour, to offer an atonement of infinite value for sin. And this sense of spiritual beauty that has been spoken of enables the soul to see the glory of those things which the gospel reveals concerning the person of Christ. 
and so enables to see the exceeding beauty and dignity of his person appearing in what the gospel exhibits of his word works acts and life and this apprehension of the superlative dignity of his person shows the truth of what the gospel declares concerning the value of his blood and righteousness and so the infinite excellency of that offering he has made to god for us and so its sufficiency to atone for our sins and recommend us to god and thus the spirit of god discovers the way of salvation by christ thus the soul sees the fitness and suitableness of this way of salvation the admirable wisdom of the contrivance and the perfect answerableness of the provision that the gospel exhibits as made for us to our necessities a sense of true divine beauty being given to the soul the soul discerns the beauty of every part of the gospel scheme this also shows the soul the truth of what the word of god declares concerning man's chief happiness as consisting in holy exercises and enjoyments this shows the truth of what the gospel declares concerning the unspeakable glory of the heavenly state and what the prophecies of the old testaments and the writings of the apostles declare concerning the glory of the messiah's kingdom is now all plain and also what the scripture teaches concerning the reasons and grounds of our duty the truth of all these things revealed in the scripture and many more that might be mentioned appears to the soul only by imparting that spiritual taste of divine beauty which has been spoken of they being hidden things to the soul before and besides all this the truth of all those things which the scripture says about experimental religion is hereby known for they are now experienced and this convinces the soul that one who knew the heart of man better than we know our own hearts and perfectly knew the nature of virtue and holiness was the author of the scriptures and the opening to view with such clearness such a world of wonderful and glorious truth in the gospel that before was unknown being quite above the view of a natural eye but now appearing so clear and bright has a powerful and invincible influence on the soul to persuade of the divinity of the gospel unless men may come to a reasonable solid persuasion and conviction of the truth of the gospel by the internal evidences of it in the way that has been spoken vis-a-vis -vis by a sight of its glory it is impossible that those who are illiterate and unacquainted with history should have any thorough and effectual conviction of it at all they may without this see a great deal of probability of it it may be reasonable for them to give much credit to what learned men and historians tell them and they may tell them so much that it may look very probable and rational to them that the christian religion is true and so much that they would be very unreasonable not to entertain this opinion but to have a conviction so clear and evident and assuring as to be sufficient to induce them with boldness to sell all confidently and fearlessly to run the venture of the loss of all things and of enduring the most exquisite and long continued torments and to trample the world under foot and count all things but dung for christ the evidence they can have from history cannot be sufficient it is impossible that men who have not something of a general view of the historical world or the series of history from age to age should come at the force of arguments for the truth of christianity drawn from history to that degree 
as effectually to induce them to venture their all upon it. After all that learned men have said to them, there will remain innumerable doubts on their minds. They will be ready, when pinched with some great trial of their faith, to say, How do I know this or that? How do I know when these histories were written? Learned men tell me these histories were so and so attested in the day of them, but how do I know that there were such attestations then? They tell me there is equal reason to believe these facts, as any whatsoever that are related at such a distance. But how do I know that other facts, which are related of those ages, ever were? Those who have not something of a general view of the series of historical events, and of the state of mankind from age to age, cannot see the clear evidence from history of the truth of facts in distant ages. But there will endless doubts and scruples remain. But the gospel was not given only for learned men. There are at least nineteen in twenty, if not ninety-nine in a hundred, of those for whom the scriptures were written that are not capable of any certain or effectual conviction of the divine authority of the scriptures by such arguments as learned men make use of. If men, who have been brought up in heathenism, must wait for a clear and certain conviction of the truth of Christianity until they have learning and acquaintance with the histories of politer nations, enough to see clearly the force of such kind of arguments, it will make the evidence of the gospel to them immensely cumbersome, and will render the propagation of the gospel among them infinitely difficult. Miserable is the condition of the Housatonic Indians and others who have lately manifested a desire to be instructed in Christianity if they can come at no evidence of the truth of Christianity sufficient to induce them to sell all for Christ in any other way but this. It is unreasonable to suppose that God has provided for his people no more than probable evidence of the truth of the gospel. He has, with great care, abundantly provided and given them the most convicting, assuring, satisfying, and manifold evidence of his faithfulness in the covenant of grace, and, as David says, made a covenant, ordered, in all things and sure. Therefore, it is rational to suppose that at the same time he would not fail of ordering the matter so that there should not be wanting as great and clear evidence that this is his covenant and that these promises are his promises, or, which is the same thing, that the Christian religion is true and that the gospel is his word. Otherwise in vain are those great assurances he has given of his faithfulness in his covenant by confirming it with his oath, and so variously establishing it by seals and pledges. For the evidence that it is his covenant is properly the foundation on which all the force and effect of those other assurances do stand. We may, therefore, undoubtedly suppose and conclude that there is some sort of evidence which God has given, that this covenant and these promises are his beyond all mere probability, that there are some grounds of assurance of it held forth, which, if we were not blind to them, tend to give a higher persuasion than any arguing from history, human traditions, etc., which the illiterate and unacquainted with history are capable of. Yea, that which is good ground of the highest and most perfect assurance that mankind have in any case whatsoever agreeable to those high expressions which the apostle uses. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 22, let us draw near in full assurance of faith, and Colossians chapter 2 verse 2, that their hearts might be comforted 
being knit together in love, and unto all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, and of the Father, and of Christ. It is reasonable to suppose that God would give the greatest evidence of those things which are greatest, and the truth of which is of greatest importance to us, and that we, therefore, if we are wise, and act rationally, shall have the greatest desire of having full, undoubting, and perfect assurance of. But it is certain that such an assurance is not to be attained by the greater part of them who live under the gospel by arguments fetched from ancient traditions, histories, and monuments. And if we come to fact and experience, there is not the least reason to suppose that one in a hundred of those who have been sincere Christians and have had a heart to sell all for Christ, have come by their conviction of the truth of the gospel this way. If we read over the histories of the many thousands that died martyrs for Christ since the beginning of the Reformation, and have cheerfully undergone extreme tortures in a confidence of the truth of the gospel, and consider their circumstances and advantages, how few of them were there that we can reasonably suppose ever came by their assured persuasion this way, or indeed, for whom it was possible, reasonably, to receive so full and strong an assurance from such arguments. Many of them were weak women and children, and the greater part of them illiterate persons, many of whom had been brought up in popish ignorance and darkness, and were but newly come out of it, and lived and died in times wherein those arguments for the truth of Christianity, from antiquity and history, had been but very imperfectly handled. And indeed, it is but very lately that these arguments have been set in a clear and convincing light even by learned men themselves, and since it has been done, there never were fewer thorough believers among those who have been educated in the true religion. Infidelity never prevailed so much in any age as in this, wherein these arguments are handled to the greatest advantage. The true martyrs of Jesus Christ are not those who have only been strong in opinion that the gospel of Christ is true, but those that have seen the truth of it. As the very name of martyrs, or witnesses, by which they are called in scripture, implies, those are very improperly called witnesses of the truth of any of them, who can only declare that they are very much of opinion that such a thing is true. Those only are proper witnesses who can, and do testify, that they have seen the truth of the thing they assert. John chapter 3 verse 11, we speak what we do know, and testify that we have seen. John 1 chapter 34, and I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. 1 John chapter 4 verse 14, and we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. Acts chapter 22 verses 14 and 15, the God of our fathers hath chosen thee, that thou shouldst know his will, and see that just one, and shouldst hear the voice of his mouth, for thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. But the true martyrs of Jesus Christ are called his witnesses, and all the saints, who by their holy practice under great trials declare that faith, which is the substance of things hoped for, and the evidence of things not seen, are called witnesses. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 and 12 verse 1. 
because by their profession and practice they declare their assurance of the truth and divinity of the gospel, having had the eyes of their minds enlightened to see divinity in the gospel, or to behold that unparalleled, ineffably excellent, and truly divine glory shining in it, which is altogether distinguishing, evidential, and convincing, so that they may truly be said to have seen God in it, and to have seen that it is indeed divine, and so can speak in the style of witnesses, and not only say that they think the gospel is divine, but say that it is divine, giving it in as their testimony, because they have seen it to be so. Doubtless Peter, James, and John, after they had seen that excellent glory of Christ in the mount, would have been ready when they came down to speak in the language of witnesses, and to say positively that Jesus is the Son of God. As Peter says, they were eyewitnesses. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 16. And so all nations will be ready positively to say this, when they shall behold his glory at the day of judgment. Though what will be universally seen will be only his natural glory, and not his moral and spiritual glory, which is much more distinguishing. But yet, it must be noted that among those who have a spiritual sight of the divine glory of the gospel, there is a great variety of degrees of strength of faith, as there is a vast variety of the degrees of clearness of views of his glory. But there is no true and saving faith or spiritual conviction of the judgment of the truth of the gospel that has nothing in it of this manifestation of its internal evidence in some degree. The gospel of the blessed God does not go abroad a begging for its evidence, so much as some think. It has its highest and most proper evidence in itself. Though great use may be made of external arguments, they are not to be neglected, but highly prized and valued, for they may be greatly serviceable to awaken unbelievers and bring them to serious consideration and to confirm the faith of true saints. Yea, they may be, in some respect, subservient to the begetting of a saving faith in men. Though what was said before remains true, that there is no spiritual conviction of the judgment, but what arises from an apprehension of the spiritual beauty and glory of divine things, for, as has been observed, this apprehension or view has a tendency to convince the mind of the truth of the gospel two ways, either directly or indirectly. Having therefore already observed how it does this directly, I proceed now to two, to observe how a view of this divine glory does convince the mind of the truth of Christianity more indirectly. First it doth so, as the prejudices of the heart against the truth of divine things are hereby removed, so that the mind thereby lies open to the force of the reasons which are offered. The mind of man is naturally full of enmity against the doctrines of the gospel, which is a disadvantage to those arguments that prove their truth, and causes them to lose their force upon the mind. But when a person has discovered to him the divine excellency of Christian doctrines, this destroys that enmity, and removes the prejudices, and sanctifies the reason, and causes it to be open and free. Hence is a vast difference as to the force that arguments have to convince the mind. Hence was the very different effect which Christ's miracles had to convince the disciples, from what they had to convince the scribes and Pharisees. 
Not that they had a stronger reasons or had their reason more improved, but their reason was sanctified, and those blinding prejudices which the scribes and Pharisees were under were removed by the sense they had of the excellency of Christ and his doctrine. Secondly, it not only removes the hindrances of reason, but positively helps reason. It makes even the speculative notions more lively. It assists and engages the attention of the mind to that kind of objects which causes it to have a clearer view of them and more clearly to see their mutual relations. The ideas themselves, which otherwise are dim and obscure, by this means have a light cast upon them and are impressed with greater strength so that the mind can better judge of them. As he that beholds the objects on the face of the earth when the light of the sun is cast upon them is under greater advantage to discern them in their true forms and mutual relations and to see the evidences of divine wisdom and skill in their contrivance than he that sees them in a dim starlight or twilight. What has been said may serve in some measure to show the nature of a spiritual conviction of the judgment of the truth and reality of divine things, and so to distinguish truly gracious affections from others. For gracious affections are ever more attended with such a conviction of the judgment. But before I dismiss this head, it will be needful to observe the ways whereby some are deceived with respect to this matter, and take notice of several things that are sometimes taken for a spiritual and saving belief of the truth of the things of religion, which are indeed very diverse from it. 1. There is a degree of conviction of the truth of the great things of religion that arises from the common enlightenings of the Spirit of God, that more lively and sensible apprehension of the things of religion, with respect to what is natural in them, such as natural men have who are under awakenings and common illuminations, will give some degree of conviction of the truth of divine things beyond what they had before they were thus enlightened. For hereby they see the manifestations there are in the revelation made in the holy scriptures and things exhibited in that revelation of the natural perfections of God, such as his greatness, power, and awful majesty, which tends to convince the minds that this is the word of a great and terrible God. From the tokens there are of God's greatness and majesty in his word and works, which they have a great sense of, from the common influence of the Spirit of God, they may have a much greater conviction that these are indeed the words and works of a very great invisible being. And the lively apprehension of the greatness of God, which natural men may have, tends to make them sensible of the great guilt which sin against such a God brings, and the dreadfulness of his wrath for sin. And this tends to cause them more easily and fully to believe the revelation the scripture makes of another world, and of the extreme misery it threatens there to be indicted on sinners. And so, from that sense of the great natural good, there is in the things of religion, which is sometimes given in common illuminations, men may be the more induced to believe the truth of religion. These things persons may have, and yet have no sense of the beauty and amiableness of the moral and holy excellency that is in the things of religion, and therefore no spiritual conviction of their truth. But yet such convictions are sometimes mistaken for saving convictions, and the affections flowing from them for saving affections. 2. 
the extraordinary impressions which are made on the imaginations of some persons in the visions and immediate strong impulses and suggestions that they have as though they saw sights and had words spoken to them may and often do beget a strong persuasion of the truth of invisible things though the general tendency of such things in their final issue is to draw men off from the word of god and to cause them to reject the gospel and to establish unbelief and atheism yet for the present they may and often do beget a confident persuasion of the truth of some things that are revealed in the scriptures however their confidence is founded in delusion and so nothing worth as for instance if a person has by some invisible agent immediately and strongly impressed on his imagination the appearance of a bright light and glorious form of a person seated on a throne with great external majesty and beauty uttering some remarkable words with great force and energy the person who is the subject of such an operation may be from hence confident that there are invisible agents spiritual beings from what he has experienced knowing that he had no hand himself in this extraordinary effect which he has experienced and he may also be confident that this is christ whom he saw and heard speaking and this may make him confident that there is a christ and that christ reigns on the throne in heaven as he saw him and may be confident that the words which he heard him speak are true etc in the same manner as the lying miracles of the papists may for the present beget in the minds of the ignorant deluded people a strong persuasion of the truth of many things declared in the new testament thus when the images of christ in popish churches are on some extraordinary occasions made by priestcraft to appear to the people as if they wept and shed fresh blood and moved and uttered such and such words the people may be verily persuaded that it is a miracle wrought by christ himself and from thence may be confident there is a christ and that what they are told of his death and sufferings and resurrection and ascension and present government or the world is true for they may look upon this miracle as a certain evidence of all these things and a kind of ocular demonstration of them this may be the influence of these lying wonders for the present though the general tendency of them is not to convince that jesus christ is come in flesh but finally to promote atheism even the intercourse which satan has with witches and their often experiencing his immediate power has a tendency to convince them of the truth of some of the doctrines of religion as particularly the reality of an invisible world or world of spirits contrary to the doctrine of the sadducees the general tendency of satan's influence is delusion but yet he may mix some truth with his lies that his lies may not be so easily discovered there are multitudes that are deluded with a counterfeit faith from impressions on their imagination in the manner which has been now spoken of they say they know that there is a god for they have seen him they know that christ is the son of god for they have seen him in his glory they know that christ died for sinners for they have seen him hanging on the cross and his blood running from his wounds they know there is a heaven and a hell for they have seen the misery of the damned souls in hell and the glory of saints and angels in heaven meaning some external representations strongly impressed on their imagination they know that the scriptures are the word of god and that such and such promises in particular are his word for they have heard him speak to them they came to their minds 
suddenly and immediately from God, without their having any hand in it. 3. Persons may seem to have their belief of the truth of the things of religion greatly increased when the foundation of it is only a persuasion they have received of their interest in them. They first, by some means or other, take up a confidence that if there be a Christ in heaven, they are theirs, and this prejudices them more in favour of the truth of them. When they hear of the great and glorious things of religion, it is with this notion that all these things belong to them, and hence easily become confident that they are true. They look upon it to be greatly for their interest that they should be true. It is very obvious what a strong influence men's interest and inclinations have on their judgments. While a natural man thinks that if there be a heaven and hell, the latter, and not the former, belongs to him, then he will be hardly persuaded that there is a heaven or hell. But when he comes to be persuaded that hell belongs only to other folks, and not to him, then he can easily allow the reality of hell, and cry out of others' senselessness and sottishness in neglecting means of escape from it, and being confident that he is a child of God, and that God has promised heaven to him, he may seem strong in the faith of its reality, and may have a great zeal against that infidelity which denies it. But I proceed to another distinguishing sign of gracious affections. End of section 10 of part 3. Recording by Matthew James Gray, mjgray.id.au.